everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Anne Irwin and Natasha Minsker from Smart Justice California. Welcome to the show. Thanks, David. Good to be here. It's great so to I see you. By way of introduction, um, does one of you want to explain kind of what Smart Justice California is and what you guys do? Sure. Smart Justice California works to elect folks to local and state office in California who will champion criminal justice reform. Uh, we work at both the state and the local level in elections. Um, anyone who pulls levers on the shape of incarceration and criminalization in California. So legislators, the governor, the attorney general at the local level, prosecutors to be sure, sheriff's races now and again. That's one arm of what we do. The other arm of what we do is um, policy work uh, and public education to support that. Um, so have a robust legislative program in Sacramento and at the local level work with our elected prosecutors and sheriffs and occasionally city council members um, to help them implement the policies that are on their wish list so they're not reinventing the wheel um, every time. So that is the bulk of what Smart Justice does. Okay, and um, what are some of uh, the issues or bills that you guys are uh, pushing uh, this year as we just start 2022? Natasha, you wanna take that? Yes, yeah, so we start the year with, we already have four priority bills that were introduced last year and made it part of the way through the legislative process. And we hope to get all the way through this year. The first is AB 256, authored by Assemblymember Ash Kalra. This is the California Racial Justice Act for All. In 2020, we passed the California Racial Justice Act, which prohibits racial discrimination in charges, convictions, and sentences, and creates a process for someone to challenge racial bias in their case. But that law was prospective only. What AB 256 will do is make it retroactive so that people who are currently on death row serving long sentences in prison, facing deportation, those folks will be able to challenge the racial bias that was involved in their convictions and hopefully get another opportunity to go to court and have justice in their cases. The next bill is AB 759, authored by Assemblymember McCarty. This bill will move elections for district attorneys and sheriffs so that almost all of them will occur during presidential years. 
This year right now, 2022, is the year when the vast majority of district attorneys in California and most sheriffs are up for election. Most counties hold these really important elections in non-presidential years, which means that there's many fewer voters engaged in these critical decisions. So AB 759 will ensure that we have the most participation in these critical elections, the largest number of voters having an opportunity to weigh in on sheriff and district attorney for their county. The next bill is SB 300 by Senator Cortese. This is a bill that addresses the extreme uses of life without parole and the death penalty in California. In California, you can be sentenced to execution or to die in prison through life without parole, even if you personally didn't kill anyone and didn't intend to kill, if you were involved in a felony where someone else died. And so we are sentencing people to the most extreme sentences in the world that don't exist in most of the world. We're applying those extreme sentences to people who didn't actually kill anyone and sentencing them really based on someone else's crimes. In addition, in California, if a prosecutor charges any one of 23 special circumstances and those are found true, then the mandatory minimum sentence is life without the possibility of parole. The only other sentencing option a judge has in those cases is execution. The judge cannot sentence a person to a parole eligible sentence, even when the judge thinks that's in the interest of justice. So SB 300 would address both of these uh, real extreme injustices. It's a very modest reform to address extreme injustices in our system. The last bill I'll highlight that is a priority for us is SB 731 with Senator DeRazo. This bill is to sunset criminal convictions. Right now, if you are convicted of a felony in particular, there are literally thousands of ways that conviction will limit your life chances going forward. It impacts education, housing, employment, opportunities to volunteer with your kid's school or after school programs. Even the ability to get a fishing license can be impacted by a prior felony conviction. And we really don't have an effective expungement process here in California. SB 731 would seek to sunset and seal most criminal convictions after the person has completed their sentence and gone an additional four years without any other interactions with the criminal legal system. So it's a really critical bill for giving people second chances. So those sound like uh, four very important bills. Um, so let's uh, start with the Racial Justice Act, which um, you know feels like it's been going on forever. Um, but um, so so that passed back two years ago now. Right. So the the act itself passed in 2020, but we didn't at that time we didn't get retroactivity, and so for ever since then we have been working to get retroactivity. So I think that was the last time I actually saw you was outside of the Capitol uh, when Kalra uh, and everyone else uh, was speaking at that press conference right before COVID shut down the world. Yes, yeah, so our press conference where we launched the Racial Justice Act, that was the last in-person lobby day for our anti-death penalty coalition. That happened to be the day that the World Health Organization declared a global pandemic. So that was the last time we were all at the Capitol together. Yeah, so I mean, that's critical legislation. And I know 
Uh, so many people are now waiting on uh, the updated uh, bill because they got convicted in racially unfair uh, manners. Uh, what will that allow them to be able to do? I mean, what kinds of issues can they point out and what's the remedy for that? Yeah, let me tell you about the case of one young woman. She was 15 years old when she was tried as an adult in San Diego County for a couple of robberies. In fact, she was the first 15-year-old tried as an adult under an initiative that passed by the voters in the early 2000s. So 15 years old, she faced trial in adult court, young Black girl. During her trial, the prosecutor referred to her in derogatory ways. And the judge even said that she was, quote, suburbia's worst nightmare. You know, clearly racially coded language used throughout this trial. And she's literally a child, a 15-year-old kid sitting in this, hearing this from judges and prosecutors uh, and being treated like a monster. So she's in prison now, serving a lengthy sentence. And if the Racial Justice Act for All, AB 256, passes, she can challenge the decision to move her case to adult court, which we have lots of data showing that disproportionately prosecutors and judges send Black children to have their cases resolved in adult court rather than keeping them in the juvenile system. And she can also challenge the racially coded language that was used in her case. And if she's successful, she would have an opportunity to have a new trial and in her case, have an opportunity for the court to reconsider whether she should have been tried in adult court at all. So it, for her, the Racial Justice Act for all is the opportunity for a second chance versus potentially spending most of her life in prison. So, so that that's a pretty powerful tool and, and a tool that's not available under the current uh, version of the act. There's um, a person I've been working with uh, for a number of years. He got convicted in 2009 in LA County. And it, it was um, a multiple defendant rape case uh, where the man was uh, Indian from uh, India and the women were all white. And uh, you read the transcript of the closing arguments and you can see all these racially charged imagery. Uh, you know, they're depicting uh, the apartment as dirty and he's smelly and they're all describing it. And then all these white, pristine, innocent women. And it's like a poster case for, for racial justice. And so he's kind of waiting, um, you know, he's actually believes that, uh, well, he, he claims that uh, he was wrongly convicted and, uh, and that he's innocent, um, but the Racial Justice Act could become the vehicle by which he could get a new trial. Yeah, you know what's interesting? I'm so glad you bring that up, David. So in the implementation of the current law, we've actually seen one of the, the highest number of complaints and areas of law where we've seen the most issues raised around under the Racial Justice Act so far have been regarding sex offenses. So we have seen, for example, one of the first successful challenges under the Racial Justice Act was a uh, young black kid who had consensual sex with a 
teenage white girl, and he was charged with statutory rape based on a consensual interaction. Uh, and the data showed, to no one's surprise, that the district attorney was prosecuting black boys for consensual encounters with white girls disproportionately. Uh, and that case eventually got dismissed. We've seen, we've heard allegations of judges and prosecutors saying that Latino men are more likely to be child molesters. Even a judge, you know, saying to a defense attorney in the case, well, in my experience, Latino grandfathers are quote like this, right? So what's interesting is that we were surprised, not what we expected, but the, the number of uh, racially biased derogatory statements and the disproportionate charging that's involved in sex offenses is really, really significant. And one of the things about the Racial Justice Act, um, part one and part two, is, you know, it's sometimes it's, it's so hard for us to, uh, in an individual case, show that the charging decision the plea offer, the sentencing decision by the judge is um, infected with racial bias, right? When you're looking just at that case, because there's no smoking gun, there's no explicit you know, use of an explicit racial slur, for example. And the Racial Justice Act allows us to zoom out and say, there is perhaps unconscious bias, systematic bias going on in this office. And we don't have to lean on an individual case or anecdote. We can just look at the numbers and look at the data. And that is a really powerful tool that will help us, you know, as I was a former criminal defense attorney, a former public defender for a long time, like Natasha. And, you know, you'd have these maddening where you knew you could feel what was happening under the surface or happening systematically, but you had no way, no bone to chew on in getting justice for your client. And Racial Justice Act finally gives you something to chew on in saying what's happening here is racially biased and the law actually bars it. So it'll be quite helpful in courthouses across California. That's absolutely right. I think one of the most powerful things about the Racial Justice Act is that it is a vehicle to change the culture in our courts. It, 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 on, on one level, it gives license to attorneys, defense attorneys, to challenge the racism they see and confront racism in our courts. But on a broader level, it is the law that judges and prosecutors must follow. And it is now their ethical duty to also challenge racism in the courts. So prosecutors, judges, defense attorneys, even police, I have been involved in training all of them on uh, the Racial Justice Act in different counties. and. I think that is the fear that those law enforcement and, and judges felt when the law was first enacted. I think for some of them, at least, it is transforming it into this actual empowering uh, idea that part of their job in standing for justice is to stand against racism and that they have the ability together to change the culture of our courts. So I wanted to uh, move on to the uh, AB 759, which I think I have decidedly mixed uh, feelings about, um, because I suspect that uh, people that are off cycle are going to end up uh, being elected for a six-year term um, to get it uh, on the presidential cycle. 
which means I'll be stuck with my uh, DA for six years uh, should he win re-election this year. Um, but, um, you know, looking at the bigger picture, you know, why, why is this a big issue? It seems like, um, you know, backing up like half a step here, it seems like over the last five, six years, um, you know, I, I went to ACLU events five or six years ago, and they talked about the fact that most DAs are never challenged. And uh, even when they are challenged, most DAs win their reelection. And we've seen now in county after county, um, you know, contested elections. We're tracking like six really hotly contested DA races this year. Um, and, and so that culture has changed a little. Um, do we need this extra tool? We do. The, you know, I'll, I'll sort of provide some contrast. Um, the one uh, district attorney or sheriff race that is on the presidential cycle, there's only one in the whole state, and that is the Los Angeles district attorney's race and, and office is the only one on the presidential cycle. And, um, it, you know, we all know the story of, of what happened there, but, you know, George Gascon went home to Los Angeles, challenged um, a very powerful incumbent uh, who identified as a Democrat. Um, and the only reason uh, he was able to get the kind of voter attention um, shining on Jackie Lacey and um, her reign was because it was a presidential cycle and voters were paying attention to the race. Um, so, you know, we sort of take that win and we contrast that to the last uh, DA cycle in California, which was 2018, when 56 of the 58 district attorneys were up for re-election, all but San Francisco and Los Angeles. And it was very difficult, very, it makes incumbency advantage that much more powerful and difficult to overcome when you are in an off cycle. So while there has been increased attention um, paid to these races, and there are more and more really smart and courageous candidates jumping in to challenge incumbents up and down the state. Um, why not move the elections to um, a cycle with the most voter participation? And I think that's why um, Assemblymember McCarty supports this and is, is championing this, and that's why we're making this a priority. Any thoughts, Natasha? I, you are right that the transition period would be a bitter pill to swallow, but sometimes you got to take that medicine to get to a better place, right? And, and the ability to have a more diverse electorate engaged in what is one of the most important elections in our criminal justice system, I, I think uh, I, hopefully that helps that bitter pill go down. I will and say it's notable, David, the uh, the the opposition to that bill and to that change, right? It is the incumbent district attorneys who understand how that will change the playing field for them. And is that just a straight bill? It doesn't need any votes or any uh, two thirds or anything? Yeah. Correct. Just, yep, straight majority vote. It's already through the assembly. It's all the way, uh, almost got to the floor of the Senate last year and they got pulled back into Senate elections. 
So it, it, it is close to the end of the process, but as we well know with bills, the end of the process is where the highest hurdles are, so. Indeed. All right. Um, so SB 300, we had uh, Senator Cortese on here a few weeks ago uh, talking about that bill, um, but it's it's kind of the latest in now a, a series of bills reforming felony murders starting with 1437 and this year, a few weeks ago, taking effect 775. Um, so what does this bill do that's different from those? Yeah, so what this bill addresses is the felony murder special circumstance rule. So special circumstances are the part of our law that prosecutors charge when they want to have someone sentenced to either life without parole or the death penalty. And all of our prior reforms in this area of felony murder address the area of straight first degree, second degree murder, situations in which a person can be sentenced to 15 or 25 years to life. But it, those reforms didn't touch the felony murder special circumstance rule. And the reason for that is because the special circumstances were enacted by the voters. And so in order to change the felony murder special circumstance, we have to get a two thirds vote of the legislature, a very high hurdle. So that's what SB 300 addresses. Right now under current law, the standard for charging an accomplice, someone who was involved in a, a felony where someone died, the standard for charging that person with either straight first degree murder that would result in a sentence of 25 years to life or first degree murder with special circumstances, which can result in life without parole or the death penalty, the legal standard is exactly the same. It's really, it's totally up to the prosecutor which of those charges they want to seek. And when the person, if they are convicted of the special circumstances, the judge's hands are tied. The judge can't sentence someone to a sentence of 25 years to life with the hope of seeing the parole board. They must sentence them to die in prison through life without parole or through execution. And so this is a, a, an extreme injustice that we're trying to address here. And the reason it has so far eluded uh, reform is because of the very high hurdle of the two thirds vote. So let me ask you this, um, a year ago now, sorry, the time is like uh, strange these days, but I think it was about a year ago, um, I was covering a uh, 1437 case in, in Yolo County and um, basically um, the judge ruled that because there was a special circumstance finding that the guy was the actual killer, he was ineligible for 1437 consideration, even though there was pretty sufficient evidence to show that he wasn't the actual killer. Is this something that can address that or is he gonna have to go a different route? He probably needs to go a different route. So there's the, the felony murder special circumstance that SB 300 is specifically trying to reform only applies if the person was an aider and a better, an accomplice, not the actual killer. So if in the case you're describing, if there's another special circumstance that was charged that required proof that he was the actual killer, then that special circumstance would, would remain in place and, and this law wouldn't impact it. And it's also true that 
in order to get the bill out of the Senate, we had to take out the retroactivity portion. So SB 300, as it's currently drafted, only applies prospectively. So we have more, we have, we have to get SB 300 across the finish line, and then we will have more work to do to go back and help individuals like the one you're describing. It is also potentially possible, I will say, that we do have the vehicle now of second look sentencing. Under second look sentencing, a district attorney can request that a sentence be recalled and that a judge reconsider and impose a different sentence. So that is an option in cases like the one you described, but of course the district attorney has to be on board with that, which it doesn't sound like they were in, in the case you're describing. Not in my county. Yeah. Um, yeah, David, they I were also, still fighting. Oh, sorry, Anne, go ahead. I just wanna say that the, you know, SB 300 is I think reflective of um, the frontier we are at the foot of in this work where we are finally ready from both a strength of the movement perspective and a public education perspective, and then a leadership perspective from policymakers, finally ready to address truly, you know, the, the excessive uh, condemn someone to die in prison one way or another sentences. And, um, our hope is that we, you know, really sort of venture into this frontier with gusto over the next few years and begin to do things like give judges the discretion of whether or not they sentence someone to uh, die in prison or uh, an indeterminate sentence that gives them a chance to go in front of the parole board. But this, I think, will be one of a series of different reform efforts that really gets at what we are an outlier in the United States um, in our ability to and practice of taking someone who is typically quite young and saying you can never be redeemed and should never be able to reenter society, no matter how different you are 20, 30, 40 years from now. It's a practice that Europeans look at us and think that we are barbaric. Um, but I think we're, we're at a place in California I'm grateful for that we can really begin to have those hard conversations about whether this is something that is humane um, and whether it serves public safety. And, and just to point out, Anna's right that the average age of someone sentenced to life without parole in California was 19 at the time of the offense. So most of the people sentenced to life without parole are, are literally teenagers. All right. Um, and, and finally, SB uh, 731, which I'm not familiar with, um, but uh, looks like a very important uh, piece of legislation because it would actually end um, the ongoing uh, terms and conditions. Am I correct there? That's right. Basically, if you're convicted in California, particularly if you're convicted of a felony, it is essentially having a scarlet letter uh, on your head for the rest of your life, right? It is, for, in most cases, that conviction is going to follow you in everything you seek to do, employment, education, housing, uh, even things like being able to get a barber's license. You are, that is made much more difficult if you have a felony conviction. So the goal here is to recognize that when someone has completed their sentence and they have moved on, then the, we need to have sunsets. We need to actually have our, those criminal convictions no longer 
impact every aspect of their life uh, and that it's appropriate for this to have a more robust record sealing expungement process here in California. So we do have some automated record sealing that happens in California. SB 731 would expand that to apply to many more cases. We also have discretionary record sealing where the individual has to go to court and petition the court that's available in some cases. SB 731 would make sure that that's available in every case uh, and that there would be no convictions where you don't have any vehicle opportunity to get it off your record if you have completed your sentence and gone additional time without having any uh, interactions with the law. So this is just a very basic uh, civic engagement reintegration into community bill and, and one that will have enormous impact on families and communities. Now, would this impact things like sex registration? Unfortunately, it would not. That we have now in California, we're finally implementing what's called tiered registration. For many, many decades, really for almost 80 years, California had mandatory lifetime registration for everyone convicted of a sex offense. And then about three years ago, with the leadership of Senator Weiner, we were able to pass a bill to create a tiered system where some people are required to register for 10 years, some for 20 years, and then a smaller number are required to register for life. That process has just gone online this year, which means that there are approximately 50,000 people who are currently going through the process of requesting that their convictions be reviewed to determine whether they need to stay on the registry or if they can now come off. This includes, we literally have people who are in their 70s that were convicted as teenagers or in their 20s, convicted of offenses that are no longer sex offenses in California. Things like we used to criminalize and prosecute gay sex uh, all the time in California at one point. So we actually have a significant number of octogenarians who are still on the registry based on behavior that uh, should have been legal at the time and is legal now. Um, so this is how bad our sex offender registry is, how much work we have to do. And at least we are starting to see some reform actually impact people's lives there now. Um, and then I wanted to ask both of you uh, kind of as my final question here, you know, what are you seeing in terms of pushback against uh, reforms. Uh, as you know, there's been a recall effort in San Francisco and maybe one in, in LA. Um, and, and there's been just kind of a general uh, shift in, uh, at least at some level, in, in, in the view on, on crime. Um, what are you seeing? Is this going to hinder these efforts? Is this a temporary thing? I, you know, um, I think that the conversations uh, in the Capitol this session will be different. Um, I, but what we can share um, some, some things that have become clear to us over the last um, couple of months is that our allies, our policymakers who are with us on course correcting criminal justice in California um, 
are not ready to cede any of the progress that we've made over the last few years. And they're reaching out not to question that progress, but to say, hey, can you help me talk through these issues with my colleagues and my constituents? Um, so I think, you know, it, what's clear is that up and down California, people are feeling um, less safe. And uh, we could talk at length about um, how they're not actually less safe um, than five years ago, 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago. Um, but really, uh, we have to do a better job of helping folks sort through the media messages they're getting about crime and safety and who's responsible for keeping them safe. Um, so this is really a moment we have been I think anticipating, you know, crime goes up and crime goes down. That is a, a historical certainty. So we have been anticipating that this pretty long period of a downward trajectory across all types of crime was at some point going to change. And this is really the time for us to shore up our, our capacity to communicate with Californians about the ways in which uh, criminal justice reform actually keeps them safer in the long run. And we really need to give our allies at the local and state level um, the support they need in having those conversations as well. They're ready to hold the line with us. We just need to make sure we equip them with what they need to do that. Exactly. And we need to really bring a critical eye to the way in which corporate interests are manipulating the conversation, right? The, the retailers, the large corporations that are driving a lot of the media attention around theft, they have their own interests here. And they're, they have their own financial bottom line that they're trying to protect. Um, and it's not, their goals do not align necessarily with actually what we need for public safety or what's in the best interest of communities. And when we look at the data, as Anne said, people, certainly there's lots of reasons to question the assertion of retailers and commercial interests saying that there's a you know, new problem with retail theft. All the data indicates that actually there has been no significant change. Where there has been a real change is actually in homicide rates in California. There's a genuine increase in homicide rates. And yet, if you look at the media coverage, the vast majority of it is talking about thefts at fancy stores or chain stores or corp you know, the theft that impacts corporations. And that's not an accident, right? That's because those interests have media operations, PR firms that are getting their messages out there and uh, dominating the airwaves. We should be having a serious conversation about the increase in homicides that's occurring in some communities and what to do about that. And that, that is not surprising. It's, it's tragic and unfortunate, but in the, the context of a pandemic that has impacted people's lives, the stress that that has added to people's lives, and the enormous number of guns that are have always been on the streets, but I, I think have literally doubled during the pandemic, right? It's it's not actually shocking to see this increase in homicide numbers, but that's where we should be focusing our conversation is how we address that problem. And we have proven solutions. We've seen things like Stockton's murder rate has gone down. There are other communities that have great success stories and we have programs we can invest in and the state has started to do things like last year's budget includes 200 million in funding 
for violence intervention programs. The unfortunate thing is that here we are seven months later and none of that money has hit the streets, right? So that we need to actually put more action behind our words and start addressing those public safety needs, uh, which critically impact communities of color more than any. I'll say, you know, the when Natasha talks about the corporate interests, you know, we typically when we talk about corporate interests in uh, criminal justice, we talk about private prison companies and but they're, you know, looking at the different types of media companies, fear is incredibly lucrative for them. And that's everything from the local nightly news. If you were to turn on Fox LA, for example, uh, they are trying to push out fear, crime, fear stories as much as possible because it keeps people glued to the nightly news. But that's also true of app-based media sources like Nextdoor. Nextdoor also has an interest in you staying glued to that app and those push notifications. And what could keep you more glued to it than getting notifications about suspicious activity in your neighborhood? So, you know, the, the, uh, Corporate interests, the profit interests abound in this space. Fear is incredibly potent and hard to talk people through, um, especially when it involves nuance. And um, so, and especially when people in a pandemic are feeling uh, disconnected from community, the sources that would actually help them feel safe and comfortable and protected in their neighborhoods. So um, a lot of work to do on you know, helping folks connect the dots between what they may be getting fed on their various media sources and how there may be a great distance between those messages and what's actually happening outside in their neighborhoods. Um, you know, the other piece that I wanna say about homicides, um, you know, of course you'll, uh, they're blaming uh, progressive district attorneys um, on the rise in homicides in various places. It's of no matter that actually in California, some of the counties where the homicide rates have increased the most are counties like Fresno, which has one of the most conservative zealot district attorneys, but her name is never mentioned when homicide rates are mentioned. In fact, District Attorney Shaysa Boudin in San Francisco is often mentioned in articles about the homicide rate in Oakland. So um, it, there's something just ludicrous about that blame level. And what I kept envisioning during the pandemic was, especially as we were hearing more and more data about the number of kids, teenagers who were essentially dropping out of school because they didn't want to participate in remote learning. So you have all of these young teenagers who, for whom maybe the only thing keeping them engaged and connected to something productive during the day with school, all of a sudden are pushed to remote learning, drop out of that system, hit the streets to continue to be able to connect with people. And then you flood those streets with ghost guns and it's a recipe for homicide disaster. Um, so we really need to be having the, those harder conversations about what are the societal forces at play rather than trying to do a reductive scapegoating of certain elected district attorneys, for example. Well, unfortunately, we could probably talk about this all day. Um, yeah, we, we will talk about it all day. <laughs>
but I want to thank you guys for coming on here and uh, talking about some of your work and some of the things going on uh, at the state level uh, with some of the uh, important legislation coming down the pike this year. Uh, Ann Irwin and Natasha Minsker from Smart Justice California. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www justiceforgeorgepowell.com that's justiceforgeorgepowell all one word dot com